Hey everybody, Chris Webster here to talk about one of the latest supporters to the Archaeology Podcast Network, The Motley Fool. Now, I've been investing in the stock market through various applications for a few years now, and everybody who's listening to this can benefit from that sort of investment for the long-term financial planning. And also, I know the hosts of these podcasts can benefit because as archaeologists, like none of us get retirement, <laughs> we all have to kind of fend for ourselves. So investing in the stock market is a good idea, but not everybody can do it. And look, we get it. The market is complicated and confusing, and to many of us, it simply doesn't make sense. In fact, where do you even start? Take all of the guesswork out of it with the Motley Fool Stock Advisor. The Motley Fool has been around for over 25 years and has been spot on in recommending some of the world's most important companies before they hit the big time. I'm talking about Amazon, Tesla, Netflix, Starbucks, all before they exploded in value. With their easy to use and super informative service, Stock Advisor, you could join the ranks before they potentially find the next big thing. After all, their average stock recommendation is up over 400% as of April 10th, 2023. And no need to be intimidated by financial jargon or market complexities. As the name suggests, these guys don't take themselves too seriously. Now, finances, that's a different story. Their friendly and relaxed approach has helped over 700,000 people move closer to financial independence, all while beating the market and having fun. New members can access Stock Advisor for only $89 for their first year, a full $110 off the full list price. Don't sit on the sidelines and think about what could have happened. Visit fool.com slash APN to start your investing journey today. That's $110 discount off of $199 per year list price. Membership will renew annually at the then current list price. So again, check the link in the show notes of this episode. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hey everybody, Chris Webster here, and today we're going to have something a little bit different. We're going to play an episode from the Rock Art Podcast that released just a few days before this episode did. So if you're a APN power listener and you've already heard it, sorry about that, but we got to cross-promote some of these shows because we feel like it's really good content and we want to introduce some people in our audience to possibly some other stuff on the Archaeology Podcast Network. Also... We turned nine on December 1st, so that was our ninth anniversary. It's been a long run. It's been a good run. We've had over 5,000 episodes produced, and it's been just really awesome having all of you guys listen to our shows, and we really appreciate feedback. All right, without further ado, it's Dr. Alan Garfinkel, and he is head of the California Rock Art Foundation, host of the podcast, and I'm on with him, and we talk about gender and sex in rock art. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast. Join us every week for fascinating tales of rock art, adventure, and archaeology. Find our contact info in the show notes and send us your suggestions. Hey, out there in uh, Rock Art Podcast land, this is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel, and we're going to be doing a show, episode 114 with Chris and myself talking about sex, gender, and rock art, both the uh, artisans and the subject matter. This is something we've not uh, talked about before and is uh, central to our understanding of Native thought. Welcome to the show, everyone. It's Chris Webster again, your usually producer, sometimes editor, and sometimes co-host of this podcast. And <laughs> today we have another show where it's just Alan and I. So, Alan, what are we talking about today? How are you doing? Good, uh, Chris. You know, I was reflecting on what we should talk about today. And one of the topics that we have not brought to bear or really touched upon, I think, in any of our 
former podcast, of which there's always a, over a hundred now, is the issue of sex slash gender and rock art. And it is something that's near and dear to my heart. And so I thought that would be an interesting yeah. topic and one that uh, is certainly relevant and hasn't been, uh, ex- hasn't been extensively discussed. How's that? That's awesome. And yeah, I can't remember a time when we did discuss that. Now to set the baseline, are we talking about sex and gender as it pertains to the creation of rock art or to the representation in rock art or both? A little bit of both. And yeah, it's a little bit of both mm-hmm. and, and relates to the issue of the femaleness, maleness, or genderness of various figures in rock art and also vis-a-vis the artisans themselves who are, who were responsible for the creation of rock art. How's that? Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, where do we start? So uh, let's start with some definitions or some discussions. When we talk about the term gender, it's become a, a topic, you know, very relevant to in our own sort of, uh, you know, discussions in the, in the news and in, in books and other things. Gender has to do with the right. role, roles and references culturally to an individual in our society. And so mm-hmm. when we talk about sex typically, biologically, there's only two of them, male and female. But when you talk about gender, then we have, you know, the male and the female, but we also have individuals that bridge both those roles or that uh, transfer or transpose or, you know, sort of, you know, change their roles into something a bit different. They may have initially been a man, but live as a woman or, um, Mm-hmm. are perceived as a woman and feel called to be a female. So I guess we could talk a little bit about all of those and and much, much more. To kick this off, what became interesting to me, you know, is some of the assertions in the literature, in the scholarly rock art literature, about the artisans and the representations and the function of rock art, mm. be it in the Great Basin or in, in other areas of the world, it seems to be a very androcentric perspective, meaning a very, uh, a very strong perspective from men. And the, mm-hmm. the individuals who are scholars, certainly of rock art, have been predominantly men, overwhelmingly, and they seem to right. have a, a bias, a bias inbred in uh, uh, defining, referencing rock art imagery from a distinctively male perspective. Have you have you come across that, or is that something that you yeah. you're familiar with, or no? Yeah, absolutely. On one of my other shows, the archaeology show, we discuss, you know, news items and and archaeology that's making it in the news. And I swear there's been a lot in the past year for sure. But, you know, leading up to this quite a bit, there's been a lot of articles and papers written about 
essentially, you know, they, they had those fantastic headlines like rewriting history and, you know, archaeological, archaeological assumptions challenged and things like that. And we shouldn't be surprised by that anymore. You know, we're finding out more and more that what we thought was a, either a predominantly male or even predominantly female activity for that matter, just because we look at it and we say, oh, only women do that, you know, at some point in history, dot, 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 they've done it all the time. And then same thing with male, you know, we see, in fact, there's an article that is going to be out, I think, in a future episode of the archaeology show about a stele yeah. found in Spain. And mm-hmm. they've long held these assumptions that, oh, well, if it's got like warrior and, and like, what is it, uh, weaponry and things like that, that this must be representing a male, but or it must be representing uh, a female if it's got, you know, long hair and some other attributes. And they've always just assumed, hey, this is a female. Well, this one is one that they would normally count as female, but it has clear male genitalia. So, like, what do you do with that? <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, this might exactly. be part of that gender fluidity. You know what I mean? So, right, right. Uh, we can't assume anything is really what the story is there. And the male bias that's happened in archaeology for the last 150 years has just got to be thrown in the toilet and started over. <laughs> I, I would agree. Now, in terms of my own research and, and something that's near and dear to my heart, I know I've talked about Coso rock art ad nauseum, mm-hmm. but... A number of people have very ardently represented that the rock art of the Kosos represents male shamans who are representing themselves yeah. in, in costume, and this was an exclusively male activity. So mm-hmm. I had, a, I had a, a woman, an African-American woman, scholar who got her PhD from the University of Florida. Her name is Marissa Molinar. And she and I worked together for several years on Coso yeah. rock art and discovered uh, quite the opposite. So when we began to examine this corpus of material relating mm-hmm. to the iconography of the Kosos, surprisingly what we found was an an inordinate, a very prevalent expression of the feminine gender, or sex as it were, represented by these individuals who were, who appear to be decorated animal human figures who are always represented as male shamans. And that's rather important. I mean, it was sort of a revelation on my part and one that, that also came out in a a book by Carolyn Maddock, who uh, sketched hundreds of these animal human figures and identified them, you know, said she was a, a student of the Koso genre, these decorated animal human, these anthropomorphs or pattern bodied figures. And she argued mm-hmm. that many of them were women. So that's, that's at one level interesting. Now, If we take it a step further, what is even more interesting in some ways is if we look at the cosmology, if we look at the way in which the uh, worldview of Native Americans are are typically rendered, they aren't exclusively male at all. They they look at this worldview as a layered universe, and that layered universe begins with a, a feminine layer of an earth goddess or earth mother. You've run across mm-hmm. that or no? 
yeah, I mean, the concept of the, you know, the earth mother or, you know, mother earth, that whole thing is, seems to be pretty prevalent throughout lots of cultures, you know, going back, you know, the popular ones are obviously the Greeks and the, and the, uh, and the Romans with their, you know, Hera and what was the, what was the other name of her? I can't remember, but either way, yeah, that, that seems to go back to a lot of cultures. So yeah, for sure. So what, what the basis of that was in part is if we look at the sky world, right? And see that it's, mm-hmm. it's populated by um, the sun, the moon, and the stars. But as we view them moving about the heavens and seeing the, the, the transposition of day and night, what mm-hmm. seems to occur is that canopy, that celestial canopy, turns and goes into an underworld, okay? And that underworld is the terrestrial realm mm-hmm. that we live on. And then it appears again up in the sky. So it would be natural to have the feminine element appear because it is only through women that we procreate and create life anew. And so if, if, if we sort of take an analog or metaphor of what we see in the natural world, it seems logical that the, this terrestrial realm, this earth mother, would then be of a feminine deity who is creating or birthing on, an, on a daily basis the heavenly bodies. Does that make any sense? Right. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Because that was that was a view of of okay. uh, native people, certainly in in the mm-hmm. the indigenous world of California and the Great Basin, but also into the American Southwest and in Mexico as well, that they saw this realm as a as a creative realm and one that has a, a feminine incl- inclination. How's that? Right. Okay. Well, I've got a comment on that for sure, but let's do that when we continue on the other side of the break. In the meantime, there are uh, lots of other good shows. I mentioned one, the archaeology show on the archaeology podcast network. We've got a couple new ones called and my trowel and uh, tea break time travel, which isn't exactly new, but the same host as both of those and check them out. Go to arcpodnet.com. We'll be back in a minute. Hey, podcast fans. I've got to talk to you about drinking water. As an archaeologist, I've been on surveys where we had to drink three to five liters of water every day. That's 1.3 gallons, just to basically not die. Sometimes that water just doesn't hydrate you as quickly as you're using it. That's why we've partnered with Liquid IV. The small packets make it easy to take one with you to work, to work out, or on any adventure. I like the strawberry lemonade and lemon lime ones the best. Just put one stick of Liquid IV into 16 ounces of water and get hydrated two times faster than with just water alone. And now with our partnership, you can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use the code TAS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration Today using promo code TAS at liquidiv.com. Welcome back to episode 114 of the Rock Art Podcast. We're talking about gender and sex and representation and in rock art and all kinds of other things. So one of the things I wanted to talk about, because you're were, you were making me think about this right at the end of the last segment, is again, we make assumptions, right? And sometimes 
all we have to go on are assumptions and we have to, you know, we, we find a limited amount of information in the ar- archeological record and we have to infer the rest of it based on either something that we know of the culture, like maybe it's only a couple hundred years ago and we have some written, you know, evidence or something like that of, of behavior. But we also have to take that with a grain of salt because the person who wrote that down had their own biases, but you know, and, and we, we look at history though, and we look at what we find through the lens of our own experience and our own surroundings. And I think modern archaeologists probably do that a lot less because we're aware of it. But like you said earlier, you know, archaeologists 40, 50, 60 years ago, even some more recent than that, that are just older and keep doing this are not aware of that. And they just keep making these assumptions, these and these biases, because the first assumption is the division between men and women and and the fact that you know sex and all that is is treated like we generally think we treat it well i want to say like 80 percent of people treat it today obviously we've got a whole bunch of fluidity and a lot of things going on but you know your standard man woman makes a baby kind of thing i mean prehistorically people have known that for hundreds of thousands of years right that's not a secret but that doesn't mean that they stuck with that during all the other times <laughs> and and representing exactly. those relationships in rock art would just be a, a logical next step. Exactly. And yeah. so what I was alluding to was trying to, you know, give, give our listeners a taste of this indigenous cosmology and how that relates to rock art. So when we, when we see these figures, they mm-hmm. often possess uh, genitals or genital symbology. So we know that either female or male. And surprisingly enough, it's ubiquitous. It's, it's very, very prevalent in Koso rock art to find females. Now, the other element that's fascinating is when we think about certain kinds of, certain classes of celestial objects, the sun and the mm-hmm. moon. Well, the sun is always, not always, but often or frequently identified as a male. And the reason for that is because it's a strong, it's a hard, it's a intense energy producing phenomenon that dries things up and, uh, you know, uh, has, has sort of this phenomenon so that it is a uh, glaring presence. The opposite of that is the moon. And the moon Mm -hmm. is seen at night in a cooler, more melodious circumstance. And when Native people, this is American Southwest, uh, Mexico, the Great Basin, view the moon, they view it as a female. Now, why would that be? The reason that's a female is because Mm -hmm. it goes through various stages when we see it crescent and and you know gibbous and the, and growing and then vanishing and coming back so it appears to be as though it is pregnant and birthing mm. and then going through the cycle all over again now right. interestingly enough in mesoamerican cosmology and rock art in the American Southwest, amongst the Hopi, just for one, and then in the Great Basin, there are certainly deities or supernatural beings that are feminine. 
Mm -hmm. And those beings are represented with gendered sexed attributes that that tip it away, that show that we're dealing with a supernatural being because it shows as an animal human figure. And sometimes it even shows the moon, the crescent moon in association with this feminine figure. Amazing. Hmm. So, yeah. And that figure, when we, so if we're taking this ethnographically and we, we look at the, what the native people tell us through the traditions, through the sacred narratives, this is a, uh, a being, well, for instance, if you want to be extreme, if we look at the high cultures of Mexico, they found a 27-ton uh, statue of one of their basic, basic high culture <laughs> deities named Coatlicue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's a feminine deity. We know it's a feminine deity because it has breasts. And it also okay. is birthing a snake. <laughs> and it's covered in snakes. Covered, wow. covered, covered in snakes. So I don't mean to get off track with, with this discussion, but snakes figure highly in Euto-Aztec cosmology, both for the Great Basin, the American Southwest, and in the high cultures of Mexico, as you're well aware. And it is a, a figure that uh, is prominent for a lot of reasons. And yeah. it has, uh, you know, uh, a metaphors. So whenever you're thinking about the depiction of an animal, a human, a figure, you have to ask yourself, what, what, what are the attributes of that figure? What's the habits and habitats of it? And how can we think about that? And what is that representing to the uh, native mm-hmm. mind and what was it trying to communicate? So that's always helpful. If I get off track on this one, <laughs> let's, jump to, let's jump to the artisans, right? The right. people who manufactured rock art and what their sex may have been. For the longest time, we thought that exclusively these were shamans who were men. But recently right. we found strong evidence that going back to almost the beginnings of rock art itself, when we had uh, handprints that were manifesting on the walls of dry caves with mm-hmm. you know numbers of ten thousands of years ago, they are exclusively females and young females at that, and they're very strong in that perspective. If you think about it even yeah. further, we have ethnographic evidence in Southern California that it was the women, young women, coming of age who ran to rocks and embellished their handprints on those rocks or identified a a series of diamond patterns that were representing snakes, again, on those Mm -hmm. rocks. But they were the artisans, the functional personae, who were actually crafting the rock art. Not men, Hmm. but women. Wow. Okay. So that puts a whole different cast, a whole different sort of genre into our understanding of the meaning, function, and implication of rock art, doesn't it? 
No, for sure. I mean, you see, I mean, name the scene and it's probably been depicted in rock art somewhere in the world, right? I mean, it's not always, like you said, hunting and things like that. So, I mean, it is a lot of the time or it seems like it is, but not all the time. And I, I think that just goes to say that, you know, like you said, rock art wasn't exclusive to one gender for lack of a better word uh it wasn't exclusive to that it was probably inclusive of you know just about anybody because it's not it doesn't take somebody who's particularly strong to do it and and sometimes not even particularly creative to be honest it i mean (laughs) some of those shapes those early shapes are are relatively simplistic right and and just about anybody could have done it for whatever reason and i always thought that the more simplistic ones the more abstract ones were really really are the product of like, you know, some sort of ritualistic behavior, right? Because it's representing something. Whereas the ones that are more identifiable figures, you know, obviously they can represent some kind of ritual, but they may also just be, you know, people putting images that represent them or their tribe or, or something on the, you know, on the wall because it's prominent and they know it'll stay there forever. So you know, who knows? Yeah. I've used a set of words to talk about rock art. One of them is representing personal immortality, <laughs> mm, nice. which, is, which is which is really what we have with rock art. It's a freeze frame of the thoughts and yearnings and passions of a people emblazoning the rocks, and in some cases having great great permanence. It can be there for hundreds thousands of years. And continues mm-hmm. to be uh, exist in a uh, a permanent state, communicating those images to those who came much much later. I feel like the modern equivalent of that is writing a book, <laughs> because yeah, you know books yeah. are books are cataloged and they're and even if it's not a popular book that had a, a big run and you know didn't sell millions of copies or even thousands of copies it's stored somewhere, you know, the library of Congress has a record of this book and, you know, as long as that sticks around for a little while. And it's a, it's a legacy, a legacy. So I, uh, for sure. I, I noticed that what I, I had left the profession for about 20 years or so and came back Mm -hmm. and the professionals in archeology, span of course, were still arguing over the same topics when I had previously (laughs) been, and they referenced my work. Right. They were reference, referencing articles right. and information that I had developed 20 years ago that were germane to the topic. And I said, wow, that's kind of neat. <laughs> I guess it was good that I wrote it down <laughs> and that I published it. Nice. So, yes. No, but it's, it, it is remarkable yeah. that uh, we can have such a legacy and that people can go to the library and see the uh, and touch and read and and picture the uh, imagery and verbiage that's emblazoning the pages of these books because it's it's a it's a monument a legacy to the people who crafted mm-hmm. those original thoughts and words and they can be uh, yeah hundreds or, or even thousands of years ago right and so that's as you say the modern day rock art is uh, the books and testaments we have to uh, those scholars and individuals who were creative and decided to memorialize their thoughts. Mm -hmm. And so rock art is certainly that same genre, memorializing the thoughts and stories and passions of a people. 
And that's what's so amazing to yeah. me when you view the rock art because you're seeing it with your eyes, but from their perspective. Right. Okay. Well, with that, we're going to take a break. Hopefully there are some, you know, ads or something within the break. Sometimes there are, sometimes there aren't, but it helps us out. Uh, in the meantime, go over to arcpodnet.com forward slash members, and you can help us out with a, uh, a membership that gets you membership to our Slack team where we can, you know, you can communicate with other members. We might be moving that over to Discord. Uh, either way, it's a place where you can talk to other members and the hosts. And also we have a whole back catalog, including some of Alan's videos, and that are available to members at any time you want on our members only pages, right? Some of the video stuff that we've done, including some video podcasts, some video, some live events, things like that. It's all on the pages for any member to see, regardless of when you join. So if you're listening to this in the end of 2023, if you buy an annual membership, we'll give you a coupon code and you can gift an annual membership for free. So it's buy one, get one free to a friend or family member of your choice. So we just want more people to be back there and have the conversation. We'd like the support, but we just want more members so we can, again, increase that community. So with that, we'll be back in a minute. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Welcome back to the Rock Art Podcast, episode 114. And, you know, Alan, we've been talking about the human representation of gender and, and, and the people that create the rock art and things like that. But one of the biggest features of rock art, and as you alluded to in the last segment, is animals. There's animals all over rock art. They're represented all over the place. And, you know, I was wondering about some of the assumptions made regarding animals. And, for example, we were talking about this on the break you know, my assumption is, because this is what I've always heard, is that, you know, female animals are often represented and in conjunction with fertility and, and things like that. And male animals are often represented, if you can even tell the sex, sometimes you can't, but male animals are often represented in conjunction with hunting and, and dominance and things like that. So what are your thoughts on, on all that? Well, let's give you a living, breathing example of sort of the contradiction or conflation sort of the intersection of the male and female gender in animal representations. So we have the, the bighorn sheep that appears throughout the Great Basin and also these horned animals that appear literally all over the world. It's a key figure that is uh, represented in rock art, R really uh, in, in many of the major rock art recorded areas all over the globe. So, one of the things I learned from a, a scholar who's interviewed these rock art scholars that are doing work in the Altai and Southeast Asia, in Africa, etc., etc., all over the place, where there is depictions of these long-horned animals. I said, first of all, the long-horned animals often or frequently are always represented with tails. And we thought that to be curious because when you, when you view some of these uh, huge horned beasts, one of the sort of the least evident attributes or parts of their physiology that you'd want to uh, even bother 
rendering is a little tail. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Their tail is often t- tucked nicely into their behinds and rarely shows up in any particular fashion when you see the animals. Well, it turns mm. out that those tails are a analog or metaphor for exactly what you've talked about, and that has to do with fertility. And the tails are mm-hmm. shown in an upward mode, either parallel to the ground or, or, or at uh, ratcheted up towards the heavens. And that, that was a mystery to me for a long time, and it was discussed at great length in a number of books and articles. And I finally discovered exactly what the story was. When I talked to wildlife biologists about these horned beasts, specifically bighorn sheep and sheep in general, they told me the only time that these animals would have their tails erect is in a posture called flagging. And flagging is, is the female communicating to the male that they're open for reproduction and have Mm. the ability to procreate and uh, produce, produce an animal. So you have this horned beast, but yet we also have the fertility complement this open, you know, introduction regarding this mixture of metaphors. And this happens all over the world. I was, uh, told from Aaron Barnia, who is producing a, a motion picture called the Ibex Code, who interviewed these scholars and said, yeah, well, all over the world, we knew that. That's, mm-hmm. uh, that's something that's uh, common knowledge amongst uh, experts <laughs> who study rock art, that that's what's going on. And I said, really? I mm-hmm. see, they said, well, yeah, of course. Why, did, why didn't you ask me? <laughs> so, right. so it took me a long time to figure that one out, and I had to go around the horn to do so. But that's what's going on, and that's, that's a, a, a fascinating sort of intersection between the mm-hmm. male and the female, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. And I wonder if... Well, to back up a little bit, one of the first, I think maybe the first time I ever saw you speak and ever possibly even met you in person, I'm not really sure though, was at the San Francisco, I think, Society for American Archaeology meeting, something like 10 years ago. And I remember you talking about yeah. bighorn sheep of the Coso and uh, this representation uh-huh. with their tails being up. It was very animated. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'll bet. I'll bet. Yeah. Well, it's been a... It's been quite a mystery for a lot of people, but I think we've got that mystery solved. So as well, there seems to be, you know, we've talked about indexical animals and those appear uh, as well. And they, of course, have metaphors of Mm -hmm. abundance, metaphors of creativity and creation and fertility all mixed together with both male and female elements. Yeah. A part and parcel of that. When we look at these human or animal human figures, they have attributes that will tell you whether they're men or women right. anatomically. You know, men have penises and the women have mm-hmm. the feminine genitalia. And the feminine genitalia is sometimes a couple of lines, couple sometimes it's pendant labia, sometimes it's an inverted 
Z or a Z the other way. Also, they show menstruation hmm. on females and they show the uh, hair bobs, the famous, you know, Hopi <laughs> sign of yeah. the women coming of age and the uh, Princess Leia <laughs> hairdo that demonstrates they've reached a, a, a critical benchmark in their coming of age and now they're able to yeah. menstruate and they can get pregnant and are creators of life. And that is all intermingled in rock art. They show that in rock art. They show the hair, they show the menstruation, and they, uh, of course, show a number of different symbols that are interconnected with anatomically with uh, both human and animal human figures that will show us we're talking about creation, fertility, coming of age rights, all that intermixed. Mm -hmm. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it really does. You know, it just shows the, yeah. again, shows the fluidity of the whole thing. You know what I mean? And, and, but then also some commonalities, right. With the almost revering of, of women when they're able to yeah. you know, get to that point where they can reproduce, they've been, you know, like I said, almost revered across the world um, as you know, creators of life. So that's definitely a commonality you see throughout yeah, lots of cultures. Yeah. And that's a good segue because not only men, but women are shamans, mm -hmm. ritual adepts who fashion rock art and are recognized as individuals who can reach or communicate and be liaisons with the mm -hmm. divine, the divinities, the creator, the supernatural beings in the heavens, as well as connecting to the terrestrial realm and communicating the power and the connections and the healing energy to do just that. And who's better to do that than perhaps a woman who has a more effeminate, sensitive, creative posture than the rough and tumble right, men. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Wow. All right. Well, any, any final thoughts to wrap up this topic? Yeah, I think, and you've mentioned this from the very beginning when we started talking that uh, we have to go and revisit some of the pivotal sort of perspectives and assertions that are part and parcel of sort of the arcane knowledge regarding mm -hmm. rock art the exclusivity of men, the uh, hunting element as being a major element, and an, an absence or diminution of the feminine and the representation of women. And so I think it's coming of age and we're returning to a, a bit of a paradigm shift on that matter. So it's been an interesting dialogue and I thank you for the opportunity to discuss this, uh, Chris. Sounds good. Yeah, this is very interesting. If you've got any questions, hit us up wherever you found this podcast and there's contact information on the show notes. If you can't find that, just go over to arcpodnet.com or archaeologypodcastnetwork.com and look for the Rock Art Podcast logo on the main page there. And then you can go to any show and take a look at the notes and take a look at the links that we have in there. So with that, I think we'll go ahead and, and say goodbye again. Leave comments if you can, and we will see you next time. See you on the flip-flop, gang. Thanks for patching in. And happy holidays. 
<laughs> That's right. Happy holidays. Oh, let me say one more thing. If you're listening to this on the day this comes out, it is the ninth anniversary of the Archaeology Podcast Network. We turned nine on <laughs> December 1st. So there we go. I just had to throw that in at the last minute. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. You can find the Rock Art Podcast wherever you find podcasts and at arcpodnet.com forward slash rock art. Also, don't forget about the archaeology show. Please rate and subscribe. Thanks a lot. We'll see you next time. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.